0: Thank you, Mary Ann. She loved hearing testimonies and seeing trophies of God's grace up here on second Sundays of the month. Well, you can turn to Romans chapter 10. We'll read that in just a second. Before we start, I want to pray. Can you close this door right here for me, young man? Thank you. Let's pray and we'll, uh, we'll get started. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for giving us a little bit of relief. With the humidity in here, some of the AC feels like it's working. Lord, we're grateful for that. Pray none of us would be distracted. Thank you for the power of your word as we've heard in Marianne's testimony. Thank you for rescuing her, for delivering her. Thank you for the Christians on that campus who saw themselves as ambassadors for Jesus. And uh, as this passage we're going to look at talks about, they had been sent by you to herald the good news, to share their very lives with those on that campus who were trapped in unbelief to leverage their freedom and their recreation and whatever, whatever other conveniences, Lord, um, to move toward unbelief, I pray we would do likewise. Thank you for the testimony of every Christian watching from home and every Christian in this building, and I pray for those who don't know you that today you would do something transformative and miraculous and supernatural and powerful, something that nobody else has the ability or the power to do, but that You have promised to do, Lord. As we hear from Your Word today, pray that You would convert unbelief. I pray that You would expose unbelief. And I pray that You would eradicate it, God, in all of our hearts. Be with us this day. I pray we would leave here encouraged and helped challenge those who need to be challenged comfort those lord who are under affliction there are so many different scenarios represented by every single human soul that is here and and watching from home pray that you would do that which only you can do in the name of christ we pray amen we're going to be reading from romans chapter 10 i'm going to finish this chapter today lord willing i'm going to back up and start reading from verse 13 you can turn with me there 13 through twenty one, Romans ten, thirteen through twenty one you can follow along. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they had not believed? In whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, had they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I asked, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands To a disobedient and contrary people. Unbelief. Unbelief is everywhere. Unbelief condemns people. Jesus when he came. He said I did not come to condemn. I came to save. He said those who are existing in unbelief. Are already condemned. Jesus didn't come to do to people. Who are perishing in unbelief. What was already happening to them. And what happened for all eternity were they to die on their sins. That's like coming upon a dead snake in the road. When you see it, you don't step on the dead snake unless you've got some issues. Then maybe you like kick it and punish it and twist it. Right? It's already dead. It doesn't need to be killed again. Jesus came and he said, I didn't come to condemn those who are in unbelief. I came to save them. So unbelief is everywhere. Unbelief condemns people. Un-de- unbelief assigns people under judgment unbelief sends people to hell for all eternity unbelief is sometimes shocking did you know that there are only two times this is incredible to me there's a word in greek i'm going to nerd out for just a minute there's a word in greek i love it's called thalmazo and i love saying it because it's one of those words in greek there's a name for it i can't remember auto or something like that and it means it sounds like its meaning It means to marvel or to be amazed. And most of the time in the New Testament that word is used, it's used for a crowd's response to Jesus. They were thalmazo, they were amazed at what they heard, they were struck out of their minds. But did you know this, that word is used two times for Jesus. This blows my mind because Jesus is God and you would think, is Jesus ever, we always say God's not surprised, he's not shocked and it's true, he knows everything. He doesn't ever learn anything, but I will also say this. Jesus was 100% God, and he was 100% man. And in his humanity, there are two times that the Bible tells us that Jesus was Thalmazoed. Does that make you curious? Like, what amazes Jesus? What makes Jesus marvel? You know what what places it it was when Jesus was Thalmazoed? Two times. One in Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. There is a Roman centurion who's a Gentile. He doesn't know anything about the God of Israel. But Jesus comes on the scene. This guy hears about him. And a servant that he loves very much, another gospel tells us it was actually his daughter, is at home and she's dying. And this centurion sends for Jesus. And Jesus hears and and he's going there. And he says, hey, look, I would love to heal your little daughter at home. I'll go to her. I'll go to her right now. And this centurion says, no, don't do that. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. But I know this. You have authority. I understand authority. I'm a Roman soldier. I'm under authority too. My commanders say, go to this one. He goes. Come to this one. He comes. And he says, Jesus, you don't even need to be there in person to heal my daughter. Just say the word and she'll be healed. And Jesus looked at the crowd and he said this. He said, It says this, it says, Jesus marveled. He was thalmazoed. And he turned to the crowd and he says, I have never seen such faith, not even in Israel. Jesus was amazed at their faith, at their belief. Today's message is about unbelief, okay? There's another time that Jesus was amazed. And it's in Luke chapter 7. It's in Luke chapter 7. And he's doing miracles and he's teaching in his hometown, and the Bible says this. This is another one of those paradoxes. It says Jesus could not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Now, could Jesus do miracles there if he wanted to? Yes. But Jesus chose not to because they were in unbelief. And, and we know miracles don't produce faith, right? I'll get back to that later. The Word of God produces faith. If you want proof of that, read the Old Testament. They saw all the plagues of Egypt. They saw the Red Sea opened up and parted and they went into the promised land and it says they were in rebellion and unbelief. The miracles did not produce faith. So Jesus chose not to do miracles in Nazareth and there was much pervasive unbelief there. And it says, and he was thalmazo because of their unbelief. So Jesus was amazed at faith from a Roman centurion because he wasn't really supposed to have faith. He didn't know anything about Yahweh. And he was amazed at the unbelief of Israelites, Jewish people, Hebrews, who grew up in his hometown and saw him do miracles over and over. If anybody should have had faith, they should have. So faith is important. I want to introduce with this, faith is important. Two times in the Bible, Jesus was amazed. It was at a lack of faith from people who should have had it. And it was the presence of faith, somebody that in all practical reasoning shouldn't have had it. Faith is important. If you believe in Jesus, that means you have to disbelieve in everything else that you were basing your assurance in your life on, all right? Jesus and self-help are like oil and water. They're like cats and dogs. The devil, I was talking to somebody about this the other day. I read this quote. I don't even remember who said it. The devil doesn't come and whisper in your ear, believe in me. <laughs> you know what he whispers? Believe in yourself. Because that's antithetical to the faith that Jesus is calling us to and the faith that Paul's calling us to in this book in Romans. You know, the world, the devil, and your flesh will tell you believe in yourself, love yourself, be true to yourself. And Jesus comes along with a countercultural, counterintuitive, antithetical message. And he says this Deny yourself, right? And he says, He who loves his life will what? Lose it. That sounds harsh, but that's the most loving thing that Jesus could ever say to us because if you believe in yourself, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end is what? Death. Belief in yourself is going to lead you to a really tragically deadly place. So that's what Paul is teaching us in this passage. There's unbelief, it's pervasive, it's within us at times, right? Even Christians. Hebrews chapter 3 says, if brothers, if there arises in any of you an evil heart of unbelief, so there's time, and I'm not saying you lose your salvation, I don't believe that, we don't teach that, I don't believe the Bible teaches that, but unbelief is within us at times and it's all around us. What do we do about it? How do we respond to unbelief? That's today's outline. Three ways, Uh, I'm going to give you three ways and we'll be on our way. You know, I was going to turn this sermon into a five-minute devotion when the air was broke, but it, it seems like it came on to me. So <laughs> nobody laughed at that. That's all right. Three ways that you can respond to unbelief. The first point I'm going to give you is the most powerful response that you could ever have to unbelief. The second one is the most foolish response you could ever have to unbelief. And the third is the most loving response you could ever have to unbelief. So point number one. What's the most powerful response to unbelief? It is in verse 17, and it says this, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. That actually says the word about Christ, and that uh, the word in Greek for word is in singular. So, they're talking about a particular word here. You need faith. How do you get faith? Faith comes from hearing a word. What word are they talking about? They're talking about the gospel message. They're talking about the, the saving message about God's rescue of sinners through Jesus, through his perfect life, his vicarious death, and his glorious resurrection and ascension. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So here's a summary of the first point. The most powerful thing you could ever do that will eradicate unbelief is constant exposure to the word of God, more specifically to the promises in the Bible And most specifically and particularly, the gospel promise that Jesus came and died for sinners. And I know, as Marianne said, that that needs explanation, that needs context, context, that's what preaching the gospel is. Jesus came and died in the place of sinners so that they could be reunited to God, so that they could be restored, redeemed, and reconciled, and made right, and adopted, and justified, and welcomed into God's heart, right? That's the most powerful thing you can do. The word of God is the only thing with enough power, and the gospel specifically, the word about Christ, is the only thing powerful enough to eradicate unbelief. It's the only thing. Spurgeon had a a powerful quote. This is what he said. The weapon with which the Lord conquers men is the truth as it is in Jesus. The gospel will be found equal to every emergency, an arrow which can pierce the hardest heart, a bomb which will heal the deadliest wound. Now, you heard Marianne's testimony. All of God's word is powerful. And what I really love are testimonies where God used this just obscure and weird passage of Scripture to lead someone to a discovery of Jesus, right? You heard she was reading about the flood. Genesis 6, verses 5 and 6, The Lord looked down from heaven, and he saw that wickedness abounded, and that every thought and intention of man was only evil continually. Marianne apply that to herself, like, we're, we're evil, we have unbelief, we're rebellious, we've turned, all we like sheep have gone astray, and God used that to show her, you're a great sinner, which led to the discovery, but Jesus is a great Savior, right? There was a pastor I served under in California, and he had the strangest testimony. He read Ecclesiastes chapter 11, and it says something like this, if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Is that not the most seemingly random and obscure passage in the Bible? And God used that to show him you're like a a rotten tree that's dead on the inside. And wherever you fall in your unbelief, buddy, you're going to stay there. And right now that place is a place of judgment. One of these days God's going to cut you down or you're just going to fall under the weight of your own rotten unbelief and you're going to stay right there condemned forever. And that passage of Scripture struck his heart and led him to a discovery of other parts of the New Testament where he read about a God who loved him so much he sent a son to die in his place. Isn't that amazing? I've told you the story of a man named Thorpe uh, who was a pagan. He went around mocking George Whitfield, in the colonies in the 1740s. And he was really good at doing impersonations. And he would cross his eyes because George Whitfield had crossed eyes. And he would stand up and he would quote some of the sermons that Whitfield did. And one night in a tavern, they were all about six beers deep into their night. And they said, hey, Thorpe. They had a contest. They said, Thorpe, get up and do Whitfield's impersonation. He stood up and he crossed his eyes and he held a beer. And he started preaching one of Whitfield's most famous sermons. Repent or you will all likewise perish. And in the middle of his mocking the word of God by quoting it, God struck him and he repented and believed. I love stories like that. I love testimonies. God's word is sharp. It can cut you, right? You better be careful in a good way. And let me apply this to you. Whether you're single or married or have friends or have family or have children and there's unbelief there, do you know what the most powerful thing, and we'll get to this too, it's the last point, the most loving thing. You're concerned, you're burdened, you're afraid for them. Well, number one, we've seen in verse one of chapter 10, Paul said, brothers, he's talking to the Israelites who've rejected Jesus pretty much wholesale, right? My heart's desire and prayer for them is that they may be saved. The greatest thing you can do is first pray for them. And desire, like God desires, that they would be saved and repent and not perish. Do you know what the second greatest thing you can do to them is? Constant, well, constant is wise exposure to the word of God. Be wise as a serpent. Be harmless as a dove. That doesn't mean you go around with a Bible the size of a Sears Roebuck catalog and beat them over the head. Or that doesn't mean if you have a stubborn, unbelieving spouse, you know, you put Bible verses in the bottom of their beer glass. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about being wise and careful and loving. Pray for them and do what you can to get the Word of God. Get them exposed to the Word of God. I, finding my, I find myself wanting to text people that I love and know and care about who are wrestling with unbelief. Just text them Bible verses. I mean, I have arguments. I, I try to Stay updated on apologetics, but do you know the most powerful thing in the world is the Word of God? It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's the, it's the hammer that busts the rock of rebellion into pieces. It's milk that nourishes your soul. It's water that washes you. It's the seed that can be planted and sprout miraculously. I think that's what all horticulture is for, right? To remind us of this miracle. The Word of God is like this seed that dies and then sprouts unexplainably people still can't explain how in the world does a seed sprout anyway that's another sermon for another day and I'm not a scientist but I do I do have plants at my house and I will tell you there are plants outside of our house and they're called somebody correct me later because I'm an idiot. I don't really know plant life. They're called impatience. It's spelled the name is 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 correct because those things can handle anything man. They can handle my kids stepping on them, my cat wallering on them. Us neglecting them and forgetting stuff, but the one thing that those plants cannot live without is water. When we forget to water them, they're like, I wish I had a time lapse of those plants when my wife forgets to water them. They like droop over, and when she comes home, she waters them, and within five minutes, they're like, hallelujah. That's that's the human soul. That's the human soul. If you want to know the one thing that you have to expose yourself to in order for life and faith to come... Verse 17 ought to be tattooed in your head. Faith comes by what? Hearing, and hearing what? Your clever arguments? No, only if, they're, only if they're straight up Bible, right? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word about Christ. So the most powerful thing that you could do for unbelief is expose it to the word of God. You know, like these, I don't know, like a vampire in sunlight. <laughs> you know, but in a good way. It's like that will turn, that will convert, that will save. It's what the Bible says. When I was in ninth grade and I was an aspiring athlete, our coach took us up above the gymnasium to this room I'd never been in it before. I'd heard the racket up there, and there was this beautiful spread of free weights and machines, and I understand, I must have been awestruck. I must have been Thalmadzo because he looked at me and he said, Clayton, this is the gymnasium. If you want to be an exceptional athlete, I'll give you two words. Constant exposure. I've got the key all summer long. It's, I'll open it for you. And man, that's what I did. Constant, if you want to grow, if you want to be alive, you want faith, constant exposure to the Word of God. That is the most powerful thing you can do to eradicate unbelief. The unbelief in your own heart and the unbelief in the people that you care about is the Word of God. I often say, Lord... I know that what I bring to the pulpit is just words. It's just a sermon that I've written. And without your spirit, it's powerless. But I know this, man. As often as I can, I'm, I'm quoting or including Scripture and in sermons because that's the power, man. I ain't got no power. I have no power at all. It's just ink on a page. But God's Word, man, it's... We think that we read the Bible. You know, the Bible reads us. It's alive. It's alive and, and powerful, and it moves And it analyzes, and it does powerful, supernatural, miraculous things. That's why this verse says that. The Word of God awakens faith. So listen, think of somebody who is existing in unbelief today and figure out a way to lovingly, gently, not in a a weird way, even though the gospel's offensive. Maybe text them, say, I was thinking about you today. And maybe they don't live near you, you can't get together for coffee. Text uh, Text them some scripture. Say, man, I was thinking of this verse, and it reminded me of you, you know? Where a tree falleth, there it lies. Not whatever, whatever, verse you, whatever verse you want to send, right? Point number two, moving right along. Point number two, the most foolish thing you can do. The most foolish thing you can do about unbelief is, what is it? It's blame God. The most foolish thing you could ever do is lie, lay at the feet of God the reason for your unbelief. And you know what? I have heard some people who love Romans chapter 9 and they pound their fist heavy when it comes to God's sovereignty also turn around and say, well, you know what? Uh, there's unbelief here and that's on God. It's, it's God's fault that they don't believe. And what I would say is this, you know, I'm not going to rehash all the arguments that we talked about in Romans chapter 9 that God is absolutely sovereign Men and women are born in sin, we're born dead, we're born blind, we're born with our face turned away from God and with our feet running as as fast as they can carry us. The Bible says that, we're we're depraved, we're evil, we're corrupt, we've been taken captive by Satan, the Bible says that. The Bible also says, unless God does a supernatural, regenerative, sovereign work through his spirit, that is exactly how we will remain in unbelief. I mean, Jesus said shocking things like, um, no man can come to me, which is analogous to salvation, right? No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So he's he's not saying I won't let them. He's saying they do not possess the power to come to me savingly in faith unless the Father who sent me draws them. He said that. Man, that's one of the hard sayings of Jesus, right? But Jesus also wept over Jerusalem, and he beckoned them and summoned them, and he said, Come to me, all you who are heavy laden and in labor, and I'll give you rest for yourselves. He says, Why will you die in your sins? He wept over Jerusalem. He said, I've 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 longed to gather you like a hen does her chicks. Those are two different truths that baffle us. It's a paradox. God is sovereign. And yet, we are absolutely responsible. Even though we're dead in our sins, we're responsible. So we can't ever make God culpable for our unwillingness and failure to believe the good news. And that's why I love this chapter, because check this out, man. Check this out. Look at the way Paul lays out this argument. He gives, he gives like bullet points. And we've talked about this before. I don't want to rehash all of it. How will people be saved? Well, first, they have to hear the gospel, right? Right? They have to hear it, they have to understand it, they have to believe it, and then they have to respond to it. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but none of that will happen unless somebody goes to them and shares the good news, preaches the gospel, and that won't happen unless somebody is sent. So Paul has just argued all of that, right? Somebody has to be sent to them, that person has to share the good news, they have to hear it, they have to understand it, they have to believe it. They have to respond to it, call on the name of the Lord and be saved. So, Paul is going to do something powerful here. He is looking out of all the unbelieving Jews, and he's saying, so, have all of those things happened for them? And he says, yes. Have they not all heard? Look at this. Look in verse, uh, let's see, we'll start in verse 15. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. That that word obeyed could be translated accepted too. He, he's making the argument: all those things have happened for them, but they haven't called on the name of the Lord. They have refused. They haven't obeyed God. It's so ironic, man. They're trusting in their obedience to the law of God to make them righteous, and in doing that and rejecting Jesus, they've actually disobeyed God. is not ironic. It's kind of a paradox. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. You hear what Paul's saying here? He's saying all those Jews who are persisting in their unbelief, they've heard the gospel. And then he says down here, their voice has gone out to all the earth. He's quoting Psalm 19. Which was an uh, basically an Old Testament passage, which was saying God has made His voice heard both in general revelation, and then halfway through the psalm it switches to specific revelation, the Word of God, so that all of mankind are without excuse. So Paul's quoting that to make an argument: they have no excuse. God's revealed Himself to them with general revelation, but even more than that, He has sent prophets, He has sent apostles. He has sent evangelists, he sent his son, and instead of saying, oh, what beautiful feet, they actually put a nail through those feet and hung that man on a cross and said, we reject him, we don't believe. So yes, they heard, yes, they understood. Verse 19, but I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. And then check out verse 21. And this is the mind-blowing, don't be so foolish to blame God for unbelief. Because look at verse 21. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So this is what blows my mind. Chapter 9 of Romans says it's not of him who runs nor of him who wills but of God who shows mercy and Pharaoh's heart was hardened so that the purpose of God according to election might stand Jacob have I loved Esau have I hated there's that whole chapter that lays out God's sovereignty and salvation you come over to chapter 10 and it blows your mind because if you were to, you're asking Paul like why don't the Israelites believe Paul And the answer you might anticipate him giving is, well, God's sovereign, and he hasn't acted, but that's not what he says. God says, it's on them, because I've stretched out my hands all day to a disobedient and rebellious nation. Do you guys follow me here? You see, that's almost a paradox, isn't it? God's sovereign, man is responsible. God has stretched out his hands to a disobedient and contrary people all day long. He stretched out his hands. Think of the picture here. Think of the picture here. Here's God who sits enthroned in his sovereignty. No maverick molecule, like the way R.C. Sproul used to say, is outside of his sovereign sphere of control. God uh, controls every atom, every molecule, every speck of dust, everything seen and unseen, visible and invisible, animal, plant, and human being. And yet, here God is, a picture of God stretching out his hand, beckoning, summoning, pleading with people to believe and to come to him and be saved. So at the end of the day, if a nation who has heard the gospel, understood the gospel, had evangelists and apologists and maybe prophets and apostles come to them and have rejected it, whose fault is it if they remain in their unbelief? Whose fault? It's their fault. It's the, excuse me, uh, excuse me, it's the fool who says, Well, that's on God. God's sovereign over salvation, so it's not their fault, it's his fault. God says, not so fast, cowboy. (laughs) No, the fault lies with you. So we are responsible. There's two penetrating truths here. Number one, every single human being is responsible for his or her response to the revelation that God has given to them. And here's the second penetrating truth and that will lead us to point number three. You and I as believers in Jesus, are responsible as ambassadors to get that truth to them. There's a responsibility there that's huge, and it's also a privilege. It's also a privilege. So, man, I had so much more I could say about that. Well, uh, and let me just use this as an illustration. You say, okay, well, what does belief really look like? Ernest Hemingway said there's only one way to see if you can trust somebody that you don't know whether or not you can trust, and that is to trust them right that's what that's what faith is it's entrusting yourself totally to jesus saying i agree with you i confess with my mouth that you're lord and i believe in my heart that god raised you from the dead and i'm also agreeing with you that i'm a sinner that i'm hopeless that i'm guilty that i'm corrupt and that i'm evil and rebellious and i need redemption i need to be cleansed i need to be forgiven i need my sins to be covered and taken away But ultimately, this picture here is of entrusting yourself to Jesus, giving all of yourself to him, saying, you're Lord and I'm not. And here's what that might look like, according to Ernest Hemingway, who wasn't a believer, by the way, but that quote stands. The only way you can know whether or not you can trust Jesus is to trust him, right? Ask a Christian, has Jesus ever let you down? Has he ever left you ashamed? Has he ever, you know, abandoned you completely? And no believer is ever going to answer in the affirmative. We may have felt that way at times, but that's never been a reality because Jesus says, I'll never leave you or forsake you, right? But here's a story to illustrate this. In 1859, there was a man whose name was Charles Blondin, and he did something that had never been done before. He had a cable stretched from one side of Niagara Falls to the other, which was a quarter of a mile, over 200 feet of raging water, and he walked across that thing and he walked all the way back. That had never been done before, 1859. And the people were roaring and applauding him. And it felt so good, he did it 17, on 17 more occasions. And he did it once on stilts. He did it once in a sack. He even once stopped halfway there and got out a stove and cooked an omelet. <laughs> well, he was getting notoriety and attention, so of course the money's flowing, right? And so one time he blindfolded himself and he walked across pushing a wheelbarrow. And the crowd couldn't believe it. And he turned around and he walked all the way back pushing a wheelbarrow. And he singled out a man on the other side of Niagara Falls. And he said, Do you believe that I can push that wheelbarrow across and return again? And the man said, I do. He believed, right? That's what belief is. And then Charles Plonin said this Get in it. (laughs) And he said, Uh uh. (laughs) So, as an illustration, Plenty of people say they believe in Jesus, right? But the Bible calls us to believe upon his name. What does that mean? That means you cast yourself upon him. Because listen, James says the demons believe and shudder. They tremble, right? The demons believe in Jesus. They believe he's real. They know he's God's son. They They could sign off on any church's statement of faith, I promise you. Even more so than we, their theology would be accurate. But here's the thing, they hate it. They despise it. They tremble. In terror, knowing the true identity of Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. For us, it should be we believe and rejoice, and we, intro- we get in the wheelbarrow, right? Jesus has carried billions of people across that gap that had called sin that separated them from a holy God. That's what belief really is. So at the end of the day, it's not God's fault that we don't believe, it's, ours. it's our fault. We're unwilling. His hands are stretched out, my friends. They're stretched out all day long. How patient has this God been? That's what's so staggering to me. The patience of God is part of his majesty. When you consider that all the times you heard the gospel and rejected it or lived like I did for years, a hypocritical life. How patient was God with you? Man, what da- when, when you understand the reality of the danger you were in, mocking God, despising his word, living in active rebellion against him, him who gave you the very breath that you were, believe, you were breathing, the very uh, logic and uh, mental acuity to be able to, to despise him and reject him, is the God who waited patiently pleading with you. That blows my mind. That's a paradox. I believe wholeheartedly God is absolutely sovereign. I, I, I believe in what is called reformed theology. And I also believe that every single human being is responsible for believing in the gospel and entrusting themselves to Jesus. And nobody will ever stand before God in judgment day and hear the words, well, you weren't elect, I'm sorry. That's not going to happen. You will be judged for unbelief. You will be culpable and responsible. God will not be. So if you're saved, you can thank God, right? He, we, don't, we don't go up to somebody that, that, who believes and say, man, you were so awesome, that was so clever. You're so wise. Thank you for believing. No, what do we do? Who do we thank when somebody believes the gospel and comes into the kingdom? Who do we thank? The evangelist? <laughs> the person? No, we hug them and celebrate and rejoice. We thank God for it because he did it. When somebody doesn't believe, though, whose fault is it? It's theirs. I don't want to kick a dead horse. You. We got one more point. This leads to our last point. Uh, Second point, I will close by saying, don't stumble over Jesus. Jesus was offensive, by and large, with some exceptions. You read the New Testament, some Pharisees came, Nicodemus came to faith. The 12 disciples who were Jewish came to faith. But by and large, the Jewish nation rejected Jesus. They cried out with one voice, crucify him. The Sadducees, the lawyers, the scribes, the Romans, Herod, Pilate, they were all together, rejecting Jesus, united in their unbelief and hatred and animosity. This leads to our last point. What's the most loving thing you can do? And I'll back up. I'll back up to get this. The most loving thing you could do is be one of those people that Paul is talking about in this passage. How will they hear unless somebody goes? How will they go unless they are what? Sent. Sent. I know we had a passage... Excuse me, a sermon devoted to that. I just want to make it a point today. I want to remind you. The church, is it's not that the church has a mission in the world. It's, it's that God has a mission in the world, and, and the church is part of it. We are like the tip of the gospel spear. This is God's plan A for getting the good news to the uttermost parts of the world is you. And that starts with your own family. That starts with your friends, your co-workers, your colleagues, people that you are, your neighbors, the people that you live beside. God, I believe today wants this truth to sit heavy on us as a reminder that God has sent you. I want to, some of these truths challenge us. Uh, this one, I want it to be a challenge. I want you to see yourself as sent. That's why we do that liturgy every single Sunday. You have been sent to go To go to those people. Let me read that part again and then I'm going to close with an illustration. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? I believe this is talking about partly what Paul is doing. Apostolic authority, the, the New Testament, the Word of God... It's inspired, it's inerrant, it's authoritative. So he's talking about that. He's talking about the apostles and the evangelists. He's also talking about those of us who have been brought into God's kingdom and who have been sent back out to to spread this good news. Listen, we gather to be edified on Sunday, right? And then we scatter Monday through Saturday and maybe Sunday afternoons too. And we go and we take this good news to those who are in unbelief. That's the most loving thing you can do, right? The most powerful thing you can do, constant exposure, wise exposure. The most foolish thing you could do is is blame God for the unbelief when God's actually part of the solution. He didn't cause it, and he's part of the cure. And the most loving thing you can do is go. Now, I've, I've shared this story before. How many people have heard about Elizabeth Elliot? Okay. In the 1950s, her and her husband... And four other missionary couples traveled to Ecuador, and they had this tremendous burden to reach a tribe of Amazon, an Amazon tribe in the one of the deepest, most remote, remote parts of Ecuador, uh, and to bring the gospel to them. Now, this particular tribe they were going uh, was one of the most hostile tribes. In fact, they've been named Aka, and that means savage. Since the since what happened that I'm about to explain to you? They've changed their name from Aka to a name I can't pronounce that means uh, the true man or the whole man, the complete man. But this this tribe were hostile. They were aggressive. They were dangerous. And everybody who had ever tried to go and reach that tribe had been killed. But Elizabeth Elliot and her husband Jim and four other missionary couples had it in their heart to go. So. They made plans to get an airplane and to drop gifts to try to make communication. And then finally, that airplane landed, and Jim Elliott and four other men, they left the the, the wives at home to pray for them and hold the rope. They came into contact with this particular tribe. The tribe walked through the woods one day, and as soon as they made contact with these men, we don't know everything that was shared between them, but they tried to share the love of God with them. They speared all five men to death on the spot right there. And Elizabeth Elliot was left a widow and her 10-month-old daughter that they just had, you know, not a year before, was left without a father. And I would, a- I would ask you, if you were in her shoes, you and your husband had this dream to take the gospel, and part of their commission was this passage I've read, part of your dream and ambition and hope and prayer was to take this gospel, the good news, to be the beautiful feet that arrive on, through the mountains and take the good news to them. What would you do if the five men that had just tried to do it were murdered, what would you do? I know what I would do. I'm a coward at heart, just being honest. I would have, The last thing I would have done would, would have been what she did. She prayed and she was convinced, God still wants me to find a way to get this good news into that tribe. So her and one of the sisters of the missionaries who was killed, uh, Nick Saint's sister, Rachel Saint, they studied that language as best they could from somebody who escaped the tribe. And they prepared, and they prayed, and eventually they had a window. And they went into that tribe, and they lived for an entire year. She took her 10-month-old little daughter, Valerie, with her. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? And they stayed there for a year, and they did their best. They took notes. They tried to translate the Bible into that language, and eventually it happened. They had their own New Testament in 1992. There's a church that's, that's been planted there. But they took the gospel into that village, and eventually scores of members of that tribe converted and The whole way of life and culture of that tribe was turned upside down. Uh, Anthropologists had studied there was a 60% mortality rate. Those people were so aggressive and hostile, they killed one another, they killed other tribes. Rarely would a member of that tribe live beyond the age of 30. And when they brought the gospel into that village, it turned everything on its head. But here's the most incredible part about this story, okay? One of the missionaries who was killed, his name was Nick Saint. His son, Steve Saint, was, was uh, just concerned to want to go and meet this tribe. And he met the man eventually. You can put that slide up. He eventually met the man who killed his father. His name was Minkayav. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. But this just blows my mind, man. Check this out. So there's a savage tribe of people in, in Ecuador in the middle of the Amazon rainforest. And a woman and her husband and four other missionaries... Try to take the gospel to them, and they're killed. And you say, it was a waste. It was a tragedy. It was pointless. It shouldn't have happened. But they were persistent. Elizabeth Elliot and Rachel Saint went and lived with them, brought the gospel, and members of that tribe were converted and came to Christ. And this man met uh, one of the elders in that tribe who had killed his father, and he came to faith in Christ. And he felt bad for Steve Saint, that's who that is. So he actually, he actually adopted him as like a, a, a member of that tribe. It's, it just blows my mind, man. What's the most loving thing that you could do? You could be sent, you could take the gospel to the most hostile people, the people that you think. Marianne, Marianne you mentioned this earlier. Sometimes we pray for people that we think, yeah, I could see them believe in the gospel. I can see them coming to faith. Uh, that's, that's reasonable. I'll take the gospel to them. How about, how about this guy that, that, that threw the first spear? He stabbed. He killed that man's father. How about that? Would you, would you think a guy like that would be open to the gospel? He's just as dead as anybody else is in their sin, right? But the gospel's powerful, and it brought new life, and he ended up in embracing. And In fact, here's another picture. That guy ended up baptizing Nick saints' kids on the shores of the place where he had speared decades earlier uh, his, their grandfather, anyway. That just blows my mind. So the three points to take away today are unbelief is all around us and it's within us what can you do well the most powerful thing you can do is constant exposure to the word of God specifically the word about Christ the gospel the most foolish thing you could do is blame God for the unbelief it's not his fault it's ours and the most loving thing you could do is be the beautiful feet who has been sent and who goes and takes the saving gospel to the ends of the earth let's pray Lord Jesus thank you so much for these truths, for, for this chapter, we, we finished chapter 10 and we have a whole chapter to talk about what does the unbelief of the Jewish nation mean for us, Lord? Why did that happen? What could be done about it? What's the implications? Help us to to understand that as we come to it. But for today, Lord, help us to focus on these the three truths. There's so many other things we could, we could talk about and focus on in this passage. These are the things that you brought to my mind to apply to Grace Life congregation and the people watching from home so help us to just meditate on these truths the next few moments and if there is anybody watching from home or in this congregation who has never jumped into the wheelbarrow lord so to speak who's never entrusted themselves to christ who's never turned and repented repented of their unbelief and turned from their sins and said yes lord i believe you i believe i'm a sinner i believe you're my only hope i believe you died in my place I believe you alone can change me and forgive me and cleanse me and I want to come into your kingdom. I want to be a member of your family. I want to be a child or a daughter of the king. I pray today would be the day, Lord, that they would pray in their heart. They would call out on the name of the Lord and that you would meet them in their unbelief and grant them forgiveness and transformation and hope and redemption. pray all these things in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.